Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us on this Monday. Coming up on the program, we're going to talk more about a story you've been hearing in the news. Registered nurses in this province, a first in North America, possibly a world first, definitely a Canadian first. Nurses being able to administer and prescribe certain treatments for people who are battling addiction. We're going to talk about that after the 1230 news. Also coming up on the program, people getting calls from someone claiming to be with Amazon. On. They are scam calls and there has been an alarming increase in the number of those. We're going to check in with the Better Business Bureau a little bit later on in the show. And coming up all this week, each day we are giving away two blankets. And you might think, what's so exciting about a blanket? Well, this particular blanket is called the Diner's Wrap. It comes in two pieces. It is, some would say, revolutionary when it comes to warmth and comfort. So that's coming up as well. We are starting off the program, though, talking about the federal travel restrictions. And we've talked about this before when it was first announced that anybody returning to Canada will have to foot the bill for at least three nights in a hotel. Today, the public health agency put out the criteria for hotels that they will have to meet to be considered quarantine hotels. We don't know which ones are going to be the actual designated hotels at this point, but we should find out soon. Joining me, though, to talk about the quarantine rules themselves and whether or not they do infringe on the rights of Canadians is Sarah Lehman, a lawyer and the founder of the Sarah Lehman Law Group. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, There have been a lot of questions about this and exactly what Canadians who are returning to Canada uh, will be required to do. Does it, in fact, infringe on the rights of Canadians? Oh, it absolutely does infringe on the rights of Canadians because, of course, the right to move freely within our country and to return to our country after traveling abroad is a right that's guaranteed in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. But that being said, the government can limit those rights and they can, theoretically at least, limit our ability to travel and put conditions upon uh, our return into the country or where we can travel to and from. And we've talked about this before as well, that that is part of the charter, but perhaps given the argument on why the changes are being brought in, why these strict rules are being brought in, uh, that could actually supersede that part of the charter. Yes, absolutely. And so the first question that the courts would look at once they determine that there is a breach of our charter right is the question of whether or not this could be justifiable in a free and democratic society. Now, there is a legal test that they will apply. They will have to consider, of course, why the law is being passed, if it's rationally connected to the purpose, if it's minimally intrusive on that particular charter right, and so on and so forth. It's quite a balancing act that the court will have to consider. But ultimately, whether or not these restrictions will be deemed to be constitutionally valid is a question that's going to be left up to them. And I know when these rules were first announced that they were coming into place, there was uh, the um, the Center for Constitutional Rights. There were uh, several groups that said they were going to go ahead and challenge it legally. But I'm guessing this would have to actually go to a courtroom. There would be the whole process of hearing this to come to some determination. Absolutely. And so the first step is always that a lawsuit needs to be started, uh, whether that will be by an individual person or perhaps a class action or even a corporation uh, that could be affected by these different restrictions. Uh, But we do have to see that originating uh, lawsuit first before the court will ever weigh in on this. And do you think there will be a big difference or the reaction, I guess, is different when we're talking about 
the uh, the quarantine rules for people returning to Canada. It seems like, and not not that this really matters for when we're talking about the law, but it does seem like the public opinion on that one is much more uh, okay with that, say, if we're comparing that to the idea of quarantine rules or restrictions between the provinces. Yes, there seems to be um, quite a bit more outcry when it comes to interprovincial travel restrictions. And uh, I mean, I think that one of the reasons for that is because Canadians are more frequently required to move between provinces to uh, do things like conduct businesses or you know visit loved ones and so on and so forth. And uh, the right to move in between provinces is constitutionally guaranteed. So um, I think that there would be a bit more pushback in terms of public opinion and maybe even from the courts with respect to those particular restrictions. And do you see things changing as well, or, or more people, I suppose, looking at this, looking at uh, the understanding of our rights as Canadian citizens? I, I'm thinking, if we think back to before the pandemic, we probably never really thought about it. The fact that it is in the Constitution, the right to movement uh, throughout the country, uh, the right to leave the country, the right to come back into the country. Uh, do you think people are paying more attention to that now? I do think so. I mean, about a year ago, we never would have pictured ourselves being in the position that we're in now. And that's a good thing. Uh, We didn't have to think too much about our mobility rights. Uh, But now, of course, uh, everything has changed and it's something that we're putting uh, a great deal of thought into. And what about the the rules or the laws when it comes to some of the other restrictions? And here we are in BC now with the current restrictions in place. So we were told on Friday that there's no set end date for this. It's obviously going to be condi- based on the condition of what happens with the pandemic, with the infection rate. Uh, do you see people, though, getting to a point where if people have had enough, they want to get back to some kind of normalcy in their own homes, uh, challenging this and again, challenging government? on what they can regulate inside someone's home? I think so. And I think that the more we see this go on, the more we're going to see the potential for those challenges increase. Uh, I think that even if you just, you know, walk around in downtown Vancouver, you'll see people are actively demonstrating and things like that. Uh, You know, it, it is... Uh, starting to become difficult for a lot of people uh, to manage these different conditions. And so I think that uh, the more time that passes, uh, the more likelihood that these types of cases are going to find themselves before the court. And something like this, I know it's impossible to know exactly how long, but say if there was, if we go back to the quarantine rules, if there was a court challenge of this, and like you said, it could be an individual or a class action, how long do processes like that generally take? Well, the wheels of justice certainly don't move swiftly. And so I think that we would be looking at at least a few years, if not even a decade, to get all the way up to the Supreme Court of Canada, depending on how things proceed. Uh, So we're really in it for the long haul on this. All right. Uh, Sarah Lehman, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Well, as you've been hearing on the news, the first cohort of registered nurses now on track to start prescribing medications for the treatment of opioid use disorder. It's all part of a plan right here in BC. 30 RNs and registered psychiatric nurses will complete their training soon and be able to prescribe the drug, which is commonly known as Suboxone. So what does this mean as far as the opioid crisis goes in this province? Christine Sorensen joins me now. The president of the BC Nurses Union. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for the invitation. Glad to be here. It does seem like a pretty cutting edge project or or something where we're we're leading the way, I guess, here in BC. How important is this that nurses are involved? 
Well, I think this is very important. You know, we have nurses that work regularly with people who are involved with, you know, these highly toxic street drugs that unfortunately are killing many people in British Columbia. Uh, the epidemic has been going on for many, many years, and we need, need to look at different ways of approaching and providing treatment and support uh, to this, this high-risk population. And this is just a, another example of good good practice, good policy. What will things look like then once the first group of nurses and psychiatric nurses are, are ready to start prescribing? How will that play out, do you think? Well, I think that what we'll see is that a number of these nurses will obviously have the right to uh, prescribe uh, pharmaceutical alternatives. Uh, many of these nurses will then support and educate other nurses, will encourage more people to go through the training. Uh, we will see uh, patients or, or people, users, people who are using uh, uh, drugs that are on the street, hopefully approaching these nurses as an alternate perhaps their other primary health care providers, many of which are having difficulties accessing. Uh, and so that we can move them into using these alternatives and then perhaps getting the, the care and support they need for other conditions, mental health issues or other addictions related issues. So will, do you think then as far as access, does it make it a bit easier? Like you said, it can be it can be difficult to find a, a primary health care giver or especially during a pandemic to get to, to see that person. Is, is it easier, do you think, then for people People to access care from a nurse? Well, I think that there's just more nurses that are involved in this work, uh, particularly in areas of the province where we do see perhaps the downtown east side, but also out in our rural and remote communities uh, where there may not be enough physicians or other primary care providers like a nurse to be able to access care from. Uh, And everyone can have access to a registered nurse uh, through various community programs, various uh, community, um, uh, some of our street nurses. And so I think if we can eventually have enough registered nurses trained uh, in in the provision of these pharmaceutical alternatives, we have a much better chance of separating these people from these dangerous and unpredictable drugs and getting the help that they need. And I was going to ask that. So when somebody then, say, will come to a nurse, they will get a prescription for Suboxone, what is the next step in that? Is it also getting somebody services or or do you do that for a certain amount of time that that person then is able to come to the registered nurse and get and get the prescription filled or kind of what's what's the what's the, the end game? Well, I think what's most important is we understand that certainly once people are then under the care of the registered nurse and getting regular prescriptions, the nurse will follow through um, and provide other supports and try to connect uh, the individual to other supports they may have in the community. This is where we, an area we do need long-term investment, you know, to build a comprehensive system of mental health and addictions care. Uh, but this does open the door to constantly having a relationship with somebody who's who has addictions and helping to get them out access to that. Uh, We really do want to increase uh, access to addiction treatment in underserved and rural and remote areas, and this will give us the opportunity to help open those doors. Uh, Would you say that this is happening? Is it because of the pandemic? Was this more attention was paid on this, and that's what what kind of got to, to the point where Dr. Bonnie Henry signed off on it, and it's now happening or because it seems like it it makes a lot of sense and I think a lot of people might question well why are we only doing this now well you're right this is ground 
breaking, never been done, never been done before work in Canada. BC's innovating. We're doing it first, and people might ask why. Well, our province has been particularly hard hit uh, with the number of people who have died in this province from the use of opiates uh, and street drugs that unfortunately have been um, contaminated with fentanyl. And we've seen a number of deaths across the province. Uh, and I think that for Dr. Bonnie Henry, she recognizes that this is an epidemic uh, that we're not all paying as much attention to perhaps as COVID. Uh, with COVID, many people are using at home in isolation, and we're seeing people die uh, at home, isolated, away from any supports. So this is just another opportunity uh, to, you know, to really change the devastating impact this crisis has had on so many people in the province. All right. Uh, Christine, I wanted to ask you quickly, uh, if I could, before uh, before I let you go, it was a story that I saw from our colleagues in interior health as well, and, and issues with safety for nurses, and in particular, having to walk distances to their vehicles and questions about safety. What is happening with that? Oh, well, unfortunately, we have two very large hospitals in, in the Interior Health Authority, one in Kelowna, one in Royal Inland Hospital, uh, both who have inadequate parking on site. Uh, and, for, and unfortunately, nurses have to often park, you know, six, eight blocks away or further uh, and have to walk to work uh, often in inclement weather, uh, in the dark, strange hours. And they have been verbally and physically uh, harassed and assaulted. Uh, in one site, nurses are actually having um, spikes, nails put under their tires. So when they go to drive the vehicle away, they have flat tires. Uh, so it is a concern that nurses have, and we certainly have around their health and safety. Uh, I need nurses to be able to get to work and be focused on patient care, uh, not concerned that walking to and from uh, their work site that they will be assaulted or that when they get out to look at their vehicle, it will have been damaged and uh, and they will be at greater risk again. Uh, so we are asking the health authority and the government, uh, and we have been asking is to address violence against health care and against nurses. This is another example, but to provide nurses with safe, accessible, affordable parking so they can do their job, which is to take care of patients in this province. And have you had any feedback or any response to that? Uh, unfortunately, it seems to be something that uh, appears to be falling on deaf ears. Uh, there doesn't seem to be a lot of interest uh, from the health authority in working with either the city or the municipalities or any other private um, uh, landowners around to say, look, it will we'll provide safe, affordable parking off-site. Uh, we'll make it accessible by having transportation to and from. Uh, we'll enhance people's ability to perhaps take public transit or uh, uh, use their bikes. Um, unfortunately, I, I really just haven't seen anything, and it's been very disappointing, this lack of response to the health and safety of their nurses. All right. So, well, we will continue uh, to follow up on that. Christine Sorensen, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks for being with us. So we want to continue the conversation about what is happening in Strathcona Park. Uh, a few weeks ago, you'll recall, we were told that by the end of April, people who are homeless and living in that park will be offered housing. And uh, we were told that the camp will be gone by the end of April. It's a timeline that is not fast enough for a lot of people. And especially given the senseless death of a 78-year-old woman in Vancouver and the suspect, one of two suspects, arrested and charged in connection with that attack was in fact living in the Strathcona Park encampment. Uh, let's bring on Sarah Kirby Young, a Vancouver City Councillor with the NPA. Councillor, thanks so much for being with us. 
Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, we have been talking about this uh, for s- several weeks and more so the past few days, uh, given what happened. Uh, a lot of people questioning how somebody could be living in the park, wanted on a Canada-wide warrant, yet we continue to hear from officials that it's not something that can be dealt with until the end of April. I, I think to address that question, you have to sort of back up a, a little bit and, and ask why this camp is there in the first place, because... The challenge is that this is not new. History repeats itself. The issues that are associated with unsanctioning encampments are very well documented. Um, and you see typically, and we've seen, had a number of them in the city of Vancouver, um, before Strathcona, most people will remember Oppenheimer. Um, and there are associated life safety incidents that happen with these. The, the living conditions degrade and become more and more inhumane. And you have associated uh, criminality um, that happens. We had a death at, uh, in Oppenheimer Park. Um, And even looking at that one more recent incident, it was very clear, if you pay attention to history and to the folks that have been involved with this before, that allowing the encampments to flourish is not the way to go. Um, Then it becomes, takes, it's progressively more difficult to find housing and to break them down. What can be done then? Because in talking to uh, other officials last week, I'm not sure if you heard the mayor, he was uh, talking on the Linda Steele show, uh, basically pointing the finger at every other group saying it's up to the park board to actually move and do anything with dismantling this. Uh, The attorney general on Mornings with Simi uh, at least offered up a plan and some explanation as to why things were taking this long. What could be done in, in a more timely way? Well, I think what, uh, to the mayor's point, I think, and and I'd say against the mayor's point, what the civic bodies can do, the park board in the city of Vancouver, is show that we're all in the same canoe and rowing the same way and not let these encampments set up and proliferate in the first place. Um, I think that's critical and fundamentally important because what assurance do the provincial partners have that um, the park board wouldn't let these things um, establish again? Um, And, you know, again, we don't need to have this to repeat yet another time to see that. So, I think that uh, we need to send a clear signal there. Um, council and park board need to show that they are committed to not letting encampments set up. They need to show that if the activity starts to happen, they're committed to injunctions. And it's really unfortunate that you have, in with Mayor Kennedy Stewart, a leader who does not support that approach. And even when council was voting on different housing options, including um, trying to invest in additional housing that would help alleviate the issue at Strathcona Park, even when that housing comes online, the mayor still voted against an injunction. So that doesn't send a very clear signal there. And then we expect when we have a major issue like this and a crime and everybody throws their hands up, that BC Housing and the province will come rushing in and fix it tomorrow and it takes some time to amass those resources. And what we need to do is not let it happen again in the first place. Uh, how do we do that, though, when there also seems to be a, a blurring of the lines between people who are in Strathcona Park who are homeless, uh, in many cases have mental illness, who do need wraparound health services, who do need housing. Uh, they're also extremely vulnerable. There's, a, there's also a criminal element, which is a very different group. And I think a lot of people look at this and say, why aren't on earth was a man living in that park who was well known to police who had deemed himself the mayor of Oppenheimer Park before he was wanted on a Canada-wide warrant why wouldn't police have gone in there and arrested him so I'm glad you asked that and they did go in there and, and they did they did they did arrest him but I, I think the issue is that we need to look at the big picture here and it's not just about Strathcona because if you let the camps fester then we're having a conversation about okay how many people are you know, validly homeless and need support. Is it 90? Is it 100? Is it up to 300? How many, what's the criminal element going in there? It's no longer safe for staff to go in, et cetera, and so on. But what that does is distract from the issue that we have in the city of Vancouver, which is the fact that at any given time, we have 2,000 homeless people in the city. 
we've had 2,000 homeless people in the city, which pretty steadily, it has, the number really hasn't fluctuated much, much over the last number of years. And so you have these situations that take away from the Herculean effort towards getting people into housing. What do you do with people that are genuinely on housing lists um, and so on and so forth? And that can actually be managed by through the normal systems, through the shelters, through the social services to help identify people's needs and try to get them to a situation that is a good one for them. So, you know, again, we're doing damage control here, but I really hope that the, the message and the takeaway for this council and this park board um, and the mayor is but let's move forward. Let's use all of this energy, not in trying to manage encampments when set up, but in actually advocating for trying to deal with the homeless issue. And it's not just about harm reduction. It's actually about providing additional services and supports, including treatment services. And we're not, we're not, uh, our voice isn't loud enough on that yet. Uh, and you raise an interesting point, and we've certainly seen that in the fact that we're talking about Strathcona Park right now. This was something that happened after Oppenheimer was shut down for the second time. Uh, so what needs to change, or how do we ensure that if and when Strathcona is shut down and the people who need housing get housing, how do we stop that from happening again in another park? That the park board needs to enforce the bylaws, um, that we have injunctions um, as soon as they set up, and that we don't have a culture that enables criminality and turns a blind eye until it becomes either the neighborhood speaks up um, too loudly that it's politically uncomfortable to deal with, um, or we have these horrific tragedies and situations that we've seen. And it was an absolute tragedy was missing. I think that, you know, that, that broke my heart, and I think it, it sort of cut everybody to the core. It's not the only people that have come to harm. You had a woman whose resident account was sexually assaulted for hours on end. You had the gentleman, Chris Sinclair, from the Indigenous community who was beaten and left for hours um, and had to go to hospital and had his, his leg amputated. So, I mean, these instances are proliferating. And so we just need to sort of say that there is no tolerance to enable these types of unsanctioned lawless encampments to fester. What would stop the city or the city working with police uh, for, with, from coming up with, with different ways of dealing with this? And I know there are going to be uh, advocates for the, the park and the camp that, that will think that this would be cruel and unusual. But if you're thinking about different ways to address this. What would stop, uh, say, setting up a satellite police office in the park, uh, setting up big spotlights in that park, saying that it, because of safety reasons, uh, setting up drone surveillance in the park? I mean, it is a public area. Uh, what would stop the city police working together to, to try and come up with some ways to not make it comfortable? Um, I think, I mean, obviously you always have to you know, be cognizant of the impact on the neighbourhood and you have to respect sort of personal freedoms. But I think that, again, it's about sending a clear signal that we're not going to tolerate um, sort of lawlessness and law and order. And unfortunately, that's not the signal that has been sent to the VPD um, by council and by the park board. They have said that they would rather let this faster and continue even after the incident. So I think that, you know, the VPD would need to know that culturally that this is what Vancouver stands for. And we manage our homelessness the best that we can through other channels. And we try to advocate, but we don't support the camps. That we need a singular voice on that because as soon as the park board splits or council splits, all you have is a stalemate and the different bodies that are all pointing fingers at each other. And that doesn't get the solution coming forward. So how do you see things playing out then? Is it we're waiting and hoping that the deadline that was given that by the end of April, everybody who needs housing will have it and that will put an end to the camp? Or, or what do you see happening? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think that the, uh, the statement made and the commitment made by Minister Eby was genuine, that um, they're working 
been doing their absolute best to pull together additional housing resources, um, which they did with Oppenheimer and to do that now um, before the end of April. I'm sure I know everybody is feeling that sense of urgency. Um, right now, we're going to have to try to manage the situation in the park as best we can. Um, it's fairly untenable and unsafe. Um, police officers won't go in and accompany that. I went down with a few city councillors last Friday, didn't even enter the park, we're standing on the corner, had a number of residents, and you would think that'd be a great opportunity to actually have a dialogue or to, you know, to talk um, to people to people. And we we experienced incredibly aggressive behaviour and told that we were trespassing and, you know, we're basically kind of run off the corner um, on the public street. So it's it's a it's a tricky situation and I think we just need to be honest about that, that it's gonna really be about um mitigating risk and damage control now um, until we can get people into housing because once you have an injunction or once you have a, an encampment that is set up as large as this, then you need to prove to get an injunction that you have a sufficient amount of housing. Uh, when that happened to you and the other councillors on Friday, could you tell, though, who it was that, that was coming after you and, and the rest of the group? Yeah, there, there's, there's, there are clearly ringleaders in that camp um, and folks that are, you know, sort of create a barrier between sort of, I think, the truly vulnerable residents in the park and them being able to engage with the different services or different people that are coming by to talk. So, yeah, I think it is. They are identifiable. All right. Uh, Councillor, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll talk about uh, this again, I'm sure, but thank you. Thanks, Jill. Thanks for having me. I want to talk about a type of phone call. It's a scam and it's on the rise. So joining me from the Better Business Bureau is Carla Laird, the Manager of Community and Public Relations. Carla, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me and hello to your listeners. Well, it's always great to talk with you, but unfortunately, we always talk to you when we're talking about an increase in scams. So what is this one that has to do with callers claiming to be from Amazon? Yeah, so last fall, actually, we shared a warning about this similar scam to the public, which is basically consumers getting phone calls from someone who claims to be an Amazon employee. And at the end of the day, they're being asked to share personal information and details about their Amazon account. Um, Last year, when that was happening, it was right around the time when people would have started their holiday shopping. And with so many people purchasing items online, it all made sense why this scam was happening. But since that time, we've seen where this scam is coming back again. So in December, we saw almost 30 reports. Um, In January, we saw almost 100 reports. And just last week alone, we saw 40 reports coming in about this scam. So it's definitely on the rise again. And that's why we're sharing this warning to, to consumers. So what do they say on the phone call? So based on the reports we're seeing from BBB Scam Tracker, the the reports are saying that it's either an automated message or a recorded message that comes in, or it's a case where you pick up the phone and you're hearing another person on the other end um, that's pretty much saying, hi, I am from Amazon. In most cases, they don't actually share their name, but they're just saying that they're from Amazon and we're calling because we've detected some issue with their account. And the issues vary. Either it's a case where you are having a problem with a delivery or there's you're entitled to a refund that you never knew about before, or it's a case where a package was damaged. And sometimes in most cases, you haven't even ordered anything. And yeah, the the list goes on and on. But at the end of the day, all the reports are indicating that they're either asking you for your credit card information, they're asking you to um, share your details about your Amazon account, or in some cases, they're asking for remote access to your device, whether it's your laptop or your desktop, so that they can go in and help you to solve the problem. But we know that's really just them getting information once they go in there. 
And so much like other advice when people have been getting these types of calls when they've come from other companies, the same thing here that Amazon would never call somebody up and ask for a wire transfer or ask for some type of unusual payment or anything like that. Exactly. So if you've ever shopped on Amazon before, you know that all of their transactions take place in your account on their website. If anyone calls you and is asking you to share details about your credit card information, your social insurance number based on some of the reports that we're seeing, or even asking you to make a payment through an iTunes gift card, we know without any doubt whatsoever that it is a scam. But what we have also noticed with this particular um, resurgence of the scam is the fact that the scammers are now spoofing numbers that you may have recognized or numbers with area codes that you're comfortable answering the phone for. And even in the U.S., based on reports we're seeing, they're, they're even spoofing some of the BBB office numbers over there. So the scammers are going all out to try and get you to feel comfortable to answer that phone and engage with them. Um, and you know, you mentioned, too, the numbers and how we're seeing an increase in the numbers. Are you seeing other types of scams or, or scammers as well trying to continue, continually take advantage of people who might be home more, who might be distracted during this pandemic? Yeah, actually, um, we've actually started to see an increase in reports, just an early increase, but it's not a surprise about tech, um, ta- tax scams, sorry, which is right around the time because actually at the end of closer to the end of this month, tax season is officially going to begin. And so this is also an opportunity to remind everyone, you know, it's tax season. We know how these scammers work. Most of these scams are very seasonal. So when you're getting these phone calls telling you that you have issues with your tax account or you need to submit your your social insurance number or share information to pay for something that's outstanding. Do not give any information over the phone to anyone you don't know. Contact your 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 bank if necessary. Contact the Canadian Revenue Agency for details before you give any information and do not feel pressure to give anything over the phone to anyone you don't know. Uh, do the scammers tend to use bigger companies in that that, that it, thinking that maybe it sounds more official? Yes, actually, that's a, a trend that we have picked up as well because of the fact that if you think of even Amazon, which is the, the company that they're preying on right now, Amazon has amazing credibility, not just locally, but internationally. So when you hear someone on the other end saying, hi, I'm from Amazon, it's almost strange to associate Amazon and scam together. And that is exactly what scammers are are riding on and, and getting people to engage with them on the phone. And that's why it takes some people a little longer than others to be able to identify the scam right away. All right. And again, if somebody, though, uh, thinks that maybe they have fallen for the scam, they're concerned that maybe they did give out some information on the phone, what should they do? So right off the bat, if you have engaged with this scam at all or you know someone who has, report it, report it, report it. Because at the end of the day, we can do our investigations and you'll also be able to prevent other persons from being victimized. So you're reporting it to BBB on our scam tracker on our website or through Amazon directly when you're logging into your account. There is an opportunity to share the details with them there so that they can do investigations on their end as well. But depending on the information that you shared, so if it's your credit card details, you want to contact your bank and have them cancel that card and reissue a new one that would have no, um, that would not have been compromised in any way. And if it's a case where you shared your social insurance number, you need to let Service Canada know right away and put a fraud alert on your credit file to monitor if anyone is trying to take out any new lines of credit in your name. 
All right, that is good advice. And uh, unfortunately, again, we have to talk about this uh, because of the increase uh, in uh, the number of calls. And uh, hopefully uh, people will have that information now and uh, won't fall for them. Carla, always good to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Thanks for being with us. We don't talk a lot of sports on this program, but this is a story that I know a lot of people are commenting on and questioning, talking about the Edmonton football team and now having a short list of seven candidates for a new name. Joining me to talk a bit more about this is Dave Campbell. He is the 630 Ched Radio producer, sports anchor and football color analyst. Thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Nice to be here. Uh, what are your thoughts on the short list of names? Well, I think the, the two names that really stand out are, as far as I think are probably in the running to be, uh, be uh, 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 as far as what, what the name could be, is, is Elk, although I'm surprised it's not Elks, <laughs> and Eagles. The other five, I think, are creating a lot of stir on social media, on Twitter, on Facebook. Um, because I don't think that those names were really expected. I mean, no one expected Evergreens and Elk Hounds and uh, Eclipse, even though Eclipse kind of sounds pretty cool. Um, But I go back, Jill, to when the Edmonton football team originally asked for fan engagement on the name. That was around late November, early December, and there was like something like 14,000 submissions uh, from from, uh, fans. So, I mean, obviously, very popular initiative, and and so many people are very interested in this in this name change for the for the double E. But we saw names like Express, we saw Energy, we saw Evolution, we saw um, you know we saw uh, I mean Excavators was on there too. I mean, there's a lot of <laughs> other names, but and I remember the the Edmonton football team releasing a, a top ten list, and other than you know, eagles and elk. I don't. I don't remember seeing the other five on that list. So I, I found that kind of interesting. But uh, it's definitely doing what uh, I think. It, it, you know, in part and parcel, what it's supposed to do is uh, create a lot of interest, and that's what it's done and caused a lot of. A lot of chatter here today in uh, Edmonton and across the country. I guess so. I, I almost feel like, uh, yeah, they almost had to put a couple on there that people would uh, look at and say, where did that come from? Just to get uh, the buzz happening and to get people uh, continuing to talk about it. Yeah, oh, well, for sure. Uh, absolutely. So, and I think it's, you know, causing a lot of Google searches about what a, what, what is an L-count, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, what is an Evergold? You know, things like that. Yeah, so... Um, and what they've done as well, too, if you go on their on their website at esks.com, they got an online survey, and uh, Morley Scott, who's the play-by-play voice, my broadcast partner here for uh, Double E Games on 630 Chad, he's actually done a uh, mock play-by-play call of a touchdown using each name. So that kind of, maybe you get to hear how it would sound on the radio for a, a touchdown, maybe that influences people's uh, thought process as well. So, but it's... Uh, yeah, I mean, there's five of the seven names that are causing a lot of a uh, lot of debate and some scratching of heads, and some people actually do do like some of those names too. Oh, I'm sure they do. Uh, to me, I, I agree with you. And elk, granted, I think we can picture it and that, but it doesn't roll off the tongue when you've got a three syllable city and then followed up with a one syllable name. It's it's a hard stop. Yeah, it, it kind of is, right? So it's. Uh, I do. I do think, though, you look at the marketing potential, and I do think you got to think about that as well. That uh, what can we do to market our, you know, the new name? Uh, I've seen some mock imagery of what 
uh, elk would look like on a helmet and you know maybe a, a logo and not to say that the Edmonton football team is going to choose this but you know I think there is marketing potential with elk I think there's a lot of marketing potential with eagles uh, I think the other five you know we'll we'll see what happens there but uh, you got to think about that too is is you know there there is you know you got to have a brand you got to have a name that people are going to be able to gravitate to and, and you know you got merchandise to sell and we know in this pandemic world right now and the, the CFL is really struggling um, you know, if you're the Edmonton football team, I would think you would want a name that's going to drive people to, you know, to buy merchandise with the new name. Uh, yeah, you got to think exactly what logo goes uh, with the name and what everything's going to look like. Uh, did they give any idea? I know now people can uh, can go on and fill out the, the survey. Did they give any idea or is there a goal that you know of as to when they hope to have the new name in place? Yes. Yeah, so the uh, time period is somewhere uh, in the first couple of weeks of April and, and likely more towards the, the middle of April. So it doesn't give a lot of time for the team to, you know, before the start of a potential season, which is also, in, you know, in question of whether they're going to start on time in, in May, June. But, you know, it, it, it's going to take uh, a while to know. It's another two months. Uh, so we're looking here at the early to mid-April, somewhere in that time frame. And I would think well beforehand they will have that name decided upon because I think, you know, you want to bring some sort of imagery that you can take to your fan base and say, hey, look, this is how it'll look on a helmet. This is how it'll look on a, a jersey. Because, you know, I mean, remember the, the uh, double E logo is not going away, although it might not be the primary logo anymore, but the green and gold scheme is still going to be in place as well. Um, but, you know, hey, here's what it will look like on a shirt or a hat or something like that. So. Uh, yeah, we got to wait a uh, probably a couple. Yeah, well, we will have to wait a couple more months here. All right, so I'm sure uh, there will be many, many people offering their feedback in that time period. Uh, Dave Campbell, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time today. Thank you, Jill. Well, earlier on, we decided we wanted to talk about this. There's a very interesting piece that takes a look at why some people are still going south, so-called snowbirds, even with the warnings from the federal government. We've heard all along that travel restrictions could change without any notice. And we now know that soon there will be the required quarantine at hotels for at least three days upon arriving back in Canada. We're going to talk to a professor in the Department of Geography at SFU But I just want to play a quick clip. This was from a caller to the show earlier, and a lot of people responded, some quite angrily, to Bill, who admitted saying he's a snowbird, and he left on November 4th for Palm Desert. The thing that bothered me was I'm talking... Oh, that is the uh, wrong one. Never uh, never mind that one. Hold on. Let me see if I've got... Here we go. Sorry. That was somebody responding to Bill. This is Bill talking about why he left. Hi, Joe. Uh, I'm in the fortunate position that I'm a snowbird. I'm calling you from Palm Desert. Ah. And we expect we expect to be down here for another uh, couple of months. And we're hoping that this compulsory uh, hotel quarantine will be over before we get there because chance we're expecting that both of us will have our vaccines before we come home. As a matter of fact, I'm actually scheduled to have mine this Friday. And so I would expect the second one would be uh, later on this, by the end of February, early March. So from our point of view, having to have a test three days before we fly, plus another test at the airport, plus three days quarantined in a hotel at uh, at a pretty pricey, uh, the way they're talking uh, seems pretty pricey, and then have another test after 
the tenth day we're away, which is interesting because uh, assuming the second one is negative, we would be at home. So I guess the test would have to be done at our home in order to meet the quarantine provisions. So it seems to me a bit uh, a bit too much. All right. So Bill says he thinks it's a bit too much, but he did make that decision in November to go to Palm Desert. Let's bring in Valerie A. Crooks, a professor in the Department of Geography at Simon Fraser University. Thanks so much for being with us. Of course. Thanks for having me, Jill. Uh, You've written uh, or co-authored this piece. It's in uh, the conversation about why some uh, people are still making the choice or have made the choice to head south for the winter. What did you find? Well, you know, one of the reasons why we wanted to contribute to this piece is what you were just alluding to, which is that there's a lot of anger that is swelling up around the fact that some snowbirds have gone south for the winter. Um, And in this piece, we wanted to highlight some of the reasons not um, justifying people's decisions to travel, but highlighting some of the reasons that that may not come to the forefront of our mind about why it is that people are going. One of the points that I I raised in this piece is that actually for some people, it's actually a cost-saving strategy to go south for the winter. Not necessarily what many of us think about in terms of snowbirds, but not everybody that goes is living the high life when they're there. There's lots of people who are doing things like, you know, buying groceries that are less expensive than at home, etc. But another factor that I think is really important for us to consider is that, of course, and it's probably obvious to us, that many people actually feel like they're actually doing something that is good for their health by going south. And so the idea that they should give that up in order to stay here for the winter and having to kind of gauge that against their own risk of contracting COVID while here, of course, raises a really interesting factor that many snowbirds have grappled with with regard to their decision making. But a final point that I think is really important to consider, and this point comes from, you know, years I've spent many, many years visiting snowbird communities, talking to snowbirds, undertaking research around healthcare use. And I know that Canadian snowbirds are used to factoring in health and healthcare access in relation to their decisions. So for many people, the pandemic is actually introducing new contingencies that are to be planned for, as opposed to a reason completely to not go abroad. I think one of the things that that Bill said when he called in that I got a lot of uh, angry email or people questioning it was the fact that he said when he comes back, it's very likely he'll have had both shots of his vaccine and therefore doesn't think he should have to quarantine. But that started off a whole different conversation then about Canadians going to parts of the United States and and what some would view as jumping the line to get that health care. Mm-hmm. That's right. This raises um, on its in its own. So even if we kind of separate this vaccine access issue from the issue of snowbirds that are going, this vaccine access issue in another country raises a whole bunch of ethical considerations along the lines of things such as the fact that we need to have a really robust national vaccine registry here in Canada. So anybody that chooses or ends up being vaccinated abroad and then returns here, it might sound simple to somebody to say, I'm going to come back and I'm going to give a card to my physician. But we actually have to have systems in place where we will be able to record all of the information that we want to have for each vaccine that's been administered. And there are questions about how that's going to happen for people who are returning from abroad and also whether or not snowbirds will be returning with the kind of information we want to see. But aside from that, there's other larger ethical issues around fairness. So is it fair for somebody such as Bill, and I'm not here to harp on Bill, Bill is just an example in this case, um, of somebody actually accessing the vaccine in another country when we know that not every person in the United States who wants to be vaccinated has been. 
So, you know, what is this issue of fairness and how do we assess it in relation to snowbirds who are choosing to get vaccinated? Um, Another thing that's really important around the vaccine issue specifically is that we know that some people experience complications in relation to the vaccine. And if that happens while a snowbird is abroad, what will the implications be for their healthcare access both abroad and also if they require care domestically? This is not me making an argument about them paying separately out of pocket when they return. It's more of a practical issue of how is this going to be accommodated for? Travel medicine policies are not geared around the idea of traveling for vaccinations. Uh, and I wanted to, to touch on something you mentioned as well, that it's not we're not talking con- uh, all the time of people who are extremely wealthy, who uh, are, are snowbirds. It can be people who are doing this that are making those decisions based on exactly what you were saying, things that are lower cost. Uh, but does, mm-hmm. does that work during the pandemic when we're, we are talking about people who are flying to these destinations much more than it's not? You can't simply get in your RV and drive into the States uh, as it is now, as if you're a Canadian citizen. Uh, so wouldn't we be talking about people that do have second homes and that are kind of in that wealthier group? That's a great question and something that I know from my experience and I've been in many different snowbird communities is that there's a whole range of of different sort of people coming from different socioeconomic statuses who are participating in this. So there are areas, for example, where I've been going in Arizona that have all kinds of apartments as well as fixed in place RVs that are rented out by the season. Um, And the prices for those reflect the seasonal availability. I don't know specifically what the availability is for this season, but given the pandemic, I'm going to guess that there are some very competitive prices going on. But even outside of that, there are other factors that, uh, you know, enhance this cost-saving strategy. There are lots of people who, when they're abroad, are engaging in, you know, secondary kinds of health care that are less expensive, such as dental care. Um, You know, they're accessing and purchasing groceries that are less expensive, even our cell phone plans. And when you combine all of that together, um, the sort of financial savings of participating in that um, are a very important draw for many people who have budgeted into their retirement plans the idea that they're going to be a retirement migrant for maybe a decade. And so given all of that, though, and for people that did still weigh the the pros and the cons and still decided to go, uh, I guess the the question is, though, are they like Bill and think that the requirements now are too much when they're coming back? Or do you still go? And part of that decision making is yes, but if Canada changes the rules, I'm going to have to prepare to follow these rules when I return. You know, I think many people are thinking like, Bill, I have to say in relation to the editorial that we published yesterday in the conversation that you were mentioning, I've certainly had some snowbirds email to say thank you so much for sharing this opinion. And I want to make it clear, our opinion is not supported specifically of people who have gone abroad. We've just offered some other kinds of points to consider in relation to this argument. But also there are many people who are mad. As an example, we had somebody respond to our editorial literally saying, and this is a quote, that snowbirds could be forced to quarantine on an ice floe, and I wouldn't care. Mm. There are many, many Canadians who are very, very mad, and they also view this as a very privileged and entitled group of people who have made, in their view, a selfish decision, which is why, again, we wanted to provide a little bit more of that behind the scenes to kind of inform people of the fact that this is a group of people who is used to making decisions based on healthcare access and their own health status as a, um, on a yearly basis some of whom are doing this for a cost-saving strategy. The, the big reason why we, we opted to share these perspectives is that the fact that so many snowbirds have gone abroad is really showing us that we haven't hit the mark in our risk management messaging going to this group. 
if we collectively are concerned that the, the number of snowbirds who have gone abroad is going to impose challenges upon their return, um, and we haven't attuned our public health messaging to them, then we now have to figure out as a collective what we're going to do upon their return um, and redirect that anger to find strategies to support the reintegration. All right. Well, it's a very interesting piece. So thank you so much for joining us to talk more about it. You're welcome. Thank you so much.